1: doctor's kitchen recipes health lifestyle
0: these apply to everyone what i talk about is not you know another type of diet these are just fundamental principles regarding how to eat to keep your body in an optimal space so that's really important to me to point out this applies to everyone
1: where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Today, we are talking all about why the most important molecule in your body, glucose, is a double-edged sword and how flattening sugar levels in your bloodstream is key to less cravings, improved mood, better weight control, and less risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, and depression. My guest today is Jesse Nchaospe, who is on a mission to translate cutting edge science into easy advice to help people improve their physical and mental health by knowing more about their glucose levels. Jessie holds a degree in mathematics from King's College London, a degree in biochemistry, and her first book, Glucose Revolution, shares her discovery about the essential role of blood sugar and the surprising hacks to optimize it, which we will talk about today. Her book and her Instagram account, Glucose Goddess, are just brilliant. The science has communicated super well, and it's just a really nice visual illustration of how and why we need to learn a lot more about our glucose. And I think there are caveats to wearing a continuous glucose monitor that we will talk about a lot today. But overall, knowing about one's metabolic flexibility, I think is super important. And we're going to be doing a few more deep dives into this on the newsletter that you can find at thedoctorskitchen.com and sign up for free there. So today we talk about the importance of adequate glucose, but also why blood glucose variability and the velocity of change in your blood glucose is also important to know. We talk about what excess sugar does to your mitochondria the energy powerhouses of your cells your dna inflammation oxidative stress and something called glycation and the impact of high glycation levels we talk about insulin and why insulin levels as steady as glucose levels are super important because of the anabolic actions of insulin Then Jessie introduces some of her glucose flattening hacks and these are pretty incredible and they're underpinned not only by the evidence base, but also Jessie's personal experience of using them and monitoring her glucose responses using her continuous glucose monitor. And I think it's also important to note that one's individual response to different foods is very personalized and that actually came out of a study that we didn't make reference to on the podcast, but Jessie certainly makes reference to in her book. That's the PREDICT study, and that demonstrated that we have individual responses to different foods, and that can be based on a combination of genetics, baseline glucose levels, baseline insulin levels. So it's important to take everything today with a pinch of salt. However, um, these hacks tend to be pretty universal when it comes to the glucose flattening effect, regardless of whether one has a particular high glucose response to a piece of chocolate or ice cream. The order of food consumption impacts your blood sugar levels. I was pretty amazed at this. Why savory breakfasts are beneficial, and I personally have a curry for breakfast every now and then, and I absolutely love it. Vinegar before meals, this is pretty amazing. Again, the acetic acid component of vinegars and why that would flatten your sugar levels. Something that I've always been told to do is a post-dinner walk. And we talk about why that could be good for sleep and cravings. A bit of housekeeping, we discuss normal ranges of glucose in millimoles per liter as four to seven fasted, and under eight two hours after eating. But your individual target range for your blood sugars may be different, especially if you have a metabolic condition and your healthcare team will agree with you what that should be. So do not use this podcast episode or any other material for that matter from the doctor's kitchen as a replacement for medical advice. It's also important to remember that Glucose isn't everything, and as we say at the end of the podcast, just because your glucose level is flat does not necessarily mean that you are eating the healthiest diet, and it should be seen as just one of those many levers that we can use to optimize our behavior and positively impact our physiology. I'm doing a new thing, which is our podcast recipe of the week, and a recipe that reflects the topic of conversation this week on the pod is my easy sweet potato chickpea salad with sumac and tahini dressing and yes you can eat the different elements of that meal in whatever order you prefer to optimize your sugar levels and that's something i'm going to be trying with my glucose monitor that i've been wearing for a, a few days now and see what impact that has you can download the doctor's kitchen app for free to get access to all of those recipes there's a seven day free trial too that we're actually increasing to 14 days and android users please bear with me we are going to be making one but it'll be later on in the year and i hope you enjoyed this podcast with jesse and Chesapeake. jesse the book honestly the book is like a textbook example of how scientists should communicate it's so well written I, I like smashed through it in like six hours because you've got a real lovely way of telling a story using visuals and making it super personal like i i felt like you were just talking to me as i was I'm reading so the book glad. So thank well you done. so much Rupi. Really, thank really you well thanks a lot no, no. And it, it, I can tell, I mean, you've been on social for a little while now, so you've really developed that skill, but I, I want to know a bit more about your, your background before we go into the crux of what you're writing about. So what was your relationship with, with food when when you were growing up and, and as a young woman and, and, and how did that lead to, to where you are today?
0: Well, when I was a kid, we didn't know much about food in my family. So I had a Nutella crepe every morning for breakfast, My mom Uh, had um, orange juice, Special K with a bunch of sugar on it every morning. Um, And then what happened is that uh, my mother met my stepdad and he had a brother called David Servantreiber who was one of the leading French doctors who started educating people on the importance of food for health. And back then, you know, I mean... Nobody believed that the food you ate could have any impact on your health. So it was quite groundbreaking. But thanks to him, we discovered this whole world, you know, sugar, processed foods versus whole foods, fiber, omega-3s. It was like a, it was really a revelation. So as a teenager, I started discovering this world and I really had an affinity for it. I thought it was very interesting. Uh, And then what really cemented my interest in Health and the body was Mm. this freak accident I had when I was nineteen, and you mentioned you you read my book and in it there's an X-ray of the hardware I I now have in my spine from that accident.
1: Mm. It was
0: really terrible. I mean, physically and mentally, I suffered a lot, but it taught me at that young age that nothing is more important than health, and so I went Mm. on this quest, this journey to try to figure out how do I feel good because I felt like absolute mm. crap, every single day. And, um, yeah. and over the years, it led me to glucose. And now here I am, I feel great that <laughs> I share the science with other people so they can feel good too.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. T- tell me about the the, uh, the accident. Uh, mm. Obviously, I, I know about it, but the, the listeners, what, what, what exactly happened to you?
0: So I was uh, on vacation with some friends in Hawaii, and they were like, Hey, let's go jump off this waterfall. So I was like, Okay, cool. So I jump off of the waterfall and instead of landing with my feet first, I kind of land sitting down. So one of my vertebrae exploded under the pressure just by hitting Mm. the water. And so I was walking around with this broken spine, so I had to have surgery where they went in, took the broken vertebrae out, fused it with the top and the bottom ones. And I was in a lot of pain for a very long time. But then physically, I actually recovered really well because I was 19, you know. So when you're that age, your body can heal quite quickly. So, in a matter of months, I was totally fine physically. Mm. But mentally, all the stress from the surgery, from the accident, the unprocessed trauma, I think, led to this really intense mental health condition called dispersal. Well, it has a few names, but depersonalization is the clinical mm. name they gave me for the condition, which is just like very deep anxiety about existing. Mm depression, brain fog, dissociation, impossible to be alone because I was so scared of just being. And that's what started on me on this journey to try to understand my body. And that's why I went on to study biochemistry in grad school. Then I worked in genetics because I really wanted to figure out how do I heal? It was my Mm. number one priority (laughs) in life.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so you did biochemistry first and then you did uh math. Is that right? Is that was that part of your math master's? Math was before.
0: Or? So ah. m- when I broke my back, I was in my second year of undergrad studying math in London.
1: Right. Okay, yeah. gotcha. And so yeah. after that, you went to work at a very famous uh, genomics company. Yes, uh, what 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 was that experience like? 23
0: and me. Oh, it was incredible. So I wanted to work in the field of genetics because I thought if I can understand my DNA, then I can understand my body and I can figure out how to feel good. Mm. The experience was amazing. I mean, the best company, the best people. I had the best job. It was really one of the happiest times of my life. But it did not help me (laughs) figure out how to feel good because while your genetics are interesting, they can't tell you what you need to do to wake up in the morning feeling good. Mm. Um, and, and that was a, a difficult realization I had while I was there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that you got experience of was um, the continuous glucose monitor. Uh, that was one of the, you, you put yourself up for, for being one of the guinea pigs. And you, you very casually mentioned this in the book, but you built your own app uh, to, to better visualize what was going on with your continuous glucose measurements. And as someone who's just finished completing building their up, I, I know that it, it's no mean feat to build an app so, and you did this, or did you do that on your own? Was that, was that something you just spun up?
0: <laughs> so let me tell you the, the backstory. So yeah. while I was at 23andMe, there was this opportunity to try, as you mentioned, these devices, continuous glucose monitors that you need a prescription for in, in the U S um, and so I put one on and it completely changed my life forever because finally i was able to see the inside of my body and communicate mm. with my biology in a way that i had been completely incapable of before and so i learned about glucose and i saw that glucose spikes were bad that we had to keep our glucose levels steady and then i wanted to share the science that I had learned with my friends and my family. I was like, guys, look, like this study shows us that if we have vinegar before our meals, we can avoid glucose spikes and feel better. But my friends didn't react to me just printing the studies and showing them the printed pieces of paper. Like Nobody really connects to that. So I thought, how am I going to communicate this important information? So I had this idea of taking data from my glucose monitor and turning it into these graphs that I could show people to illustrate the science. But the problem is, the app that the device comes with, it's a medical app. Like It's not something you can just turn into easy to understand graphics. It's just yeah. raw data and nothing else. So I had to figure out how to extract the data from that app and then to make my own little illustrations. So yeah, I built a piece of software that did it. I took lots of different pieces from the internet. So the concept was you had to, I had to take a screenshot of my daily glucose curve on the app that the device came with. And uh-huh. then I would put this image through a digitizer online that would like uh-huh. extract the data points. And then I wrote this software um, in this program called R, which I had learned when I was in grad school. And right. this program then took the data in and made these graphs. And the evolution of that is what you see on my Instagram today. And so yeah. then I worked with some engineers to like make it into a proper app, but at the beginning it was running just on my laptop for, you know, a year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was just importing my data and running a really startup mode, you know, really like Silicon Valley vibes um, yeah. from my living room. So yeah, I, I did do that.
1: <laughs> That's fab. That I, I've so much respect for that because I know how difficult it is, you know to do this on your own as well. And the fact that you're able to spin it up and, on, and by, by yourself is, is amazing. So, And well, it's a know, really cool app.
0: Thank you. And when you really want to do something, uh, mm. personally, if I really want something to happen, like nothing can get in my way, I will make it happen. And so I spent countless hours building this piece of software um, to make it work. But I was so determined to doing this because I knew this would change the game. I knew this would help people visualize the science, understand it, become interested in it. And that was my objective because the stuff I had discovered was so life-changing I needed to find a way to make it sexy so I could share it and people could then apply it to their own lives.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's dive into that. So why is sugar so important? Maybe we could talk about the, like the different names, the the relationship between starch, sugars and and fiber. And, um, yeah, what would just give us a primer on, on that?
0: Sure. So the word I use is glucose, and as you know, glucose is your body's preferred energy source. And we get glucose from the foods we eat. So every time we eat something starchy, like bread, pasta, rice, potatoes, or every time we eat something sweet. So this could be fruit, this could be cookies, this could be cakes, whatever. Every time you eat something starchy or sweet, they break down into glucose in your body. Special mention for the sweet foods also break down to fructose as a separate issue. But if you eat something sweet or starchy, glucose is going to land in your bloodstream. And glucose is very important, like we need it to be able to function properly. But the problem arises when we deliver too much glucose too quickly to our body. It's like if you give a plant too much water and it drowns, or a human too much oxygen and they pass out. Too much glucose creates these glucose spikes and these glucose spikes have lots of consequences.
1: Yeah, you're really good at creating analogies, just like you just did there with the plant, for example, because I think it's really important to communicate that it's not glucose per se or sugars per se that the issue is the excess of them, as well as what you describe in the book as the velocity and the spiking of them and the degree of change as well. Uh, because you know, as people who are listening to this podcast will will likely understand, uh, glucose is an essential molecule for life. You know, it's it's how we we uh, we provide energy to our cells, with the brain cells, liver cells, etc. Um, so, with that in mind, let let's talk about what those ranges should be for for glucose, and and why a CGM or or knowledge about your sugar. Levels uh, w- would help with uh, maintaining those those uh, the absolutely.
0: Ups. And you might be able to help me because I know the units in milligrams really well. I'll try to remember the ones in millimole, which are the British units. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, you, we're gonna do you're gonna help me. So fasting, which means first thing in the morning, uh, level of glucose should. Per the NHS, be underneath hundred milligrams per deciliter, which I believe is five point five millimoles. Is that correct? Yeah, it's
1: about five point five millimoles. Five point five millimoles.
0: Anything above that, as you're fasting, so first thing in the morning level, um, signals prediabetes and then diabetes, which is a big issue. However, while these are the numbers the NHS um, publicly, you know, recommends. The fact that if your blood glucose level first thing in the morning is under 5.5 millimoles might mean that you're normal, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your blood sugar levels are optimal. So the science shows us that actually it's probably ideal for your body to have fasting glucose levels under 4.5 millimoles or 85 milligrams per deciliter. So that's just fasting. And then we also know that after a meal, when the concentration of glucose level is most likely to increase uh, most rapidly because it's after eating that glucose gets into the bloodstream, we have to think about the spike that the meal creates. And from the studies, it appears that it is ideal to try to keep that spike to under 1.7 millimole per liters after eating. And again, this is from, you know, early studies done in non-diabetics. So in my work, In my book and on instagram i define a spike as anything above 1.7 millimol per liter increase after a meal and the objective is to try to avoid these spikes because they have all these consequences on our physical and mental health
1: yeah yeah I, i think this speaks to a wider issue that we have in medicine with regards to reference ranges and how will we actually come up with reference ranges? Um, we usually look at like uh, the average and then two standard deviations either side. And that's why we have like pretty large ones for things like um, liver function tests, for example, where it doesn't demonstrate optimal values. It just demonstrates what they should be to be quote unquote normal. And so I, I, I guess what you and, and, and the book is getting at is, okay, what is an optimal level of glucose that we should try and aim for to prevent any of these issues rather than something that just signals when something is going wrong. Cause a lot of the times, particularly during my experience as a medic is we catch people too late. We catch people in that pre-diabetes stage or even type two diabetes stage as, as per an OGTT and, or, or a glucose tolerance test, rather than getting it before then, where we have a lot more time to make some changes to ensure that it's reversible. Um, And I think, yeah, we have to really look into that uh, rather than the arbitrary amounts that we currently have within the NHS and and other healthcare systems.
0: Yeah, because right now, if you go to the doctor and your fasting is like 53 they'll say, oh, it's normal, it's not pre-diabetic, you can go home, when actually, if you're at 5.3, it means you've probably slowly been inching towards pre-diabetes for a decade, and actually, you should try to, you know, change a little bit of your lifestyle, use my easy hacks to get that number down. But right now, yeah, I mean, um, as you know, doctors are there to diagnose and treat diseases, and so unless you have a pre-diabetes um, diagnosis not much is recommended to you when really we yeah. can all benefits from keeping our glucose levels steady not just to avoid pre-diabetes but to sleep better to have better mental health to avoid mm. cravings to avoid wrinkles hormonal issues i mean it's much wider than just diabetes
1: yeah yeah absolutely and i, I i've got a number of personal uh, stories of family members that have just missed that cutoff of hba1c and we know about the inaccuracies of HBA uh, HBA1c anyway because you know it doesn't catch those glucose spikes and it's totally. just an average over a month period or a couple of months period. So, so that that again speaks to the potential utility of a CGM and uh, more sort of rigorous understanding and monitoring of of glucose.
0: And what's happened to your family members?
1: Oh, I mean, like uh, they've got me, so yeah.
0: <laughs> I've changed their
1: diet quite a bit, and uh, they are much lower. and the, And their their personal docs are uh, are quite pleased with how their HV1C is, is looking. So, yeah. Nice. <laughs> but we you know, we're trying to make this uh, information as freely available as possible. Uh, so, you know, teaching people about those thriving ranges of glucose is uh, is super important. So, so we've established um, the reference ranges why there might be some inherent uh, inaccuracies and the velocity of, of glucose uh, and the changes that we might see in your bloodstream. What happens when we see those big changes? Let's say, you know, you have a, a cinnamon bun. I love cinnamon buns. I know you like your chocolate as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so what happened? Why, why are these so bad? What, why, why is the glucose spike going to be damaging to a, a whole bunch of uh, uh, issues w- within the body?
0: So the two main things that happen in your body when you spike have to do, one, with your mitochondria, and two, with toasting. So I will explain both. So every time you have this big increase in concentration of your blood sugar levels, so this glucose spike, glucose, when it arrives in your bloodstream, its primary objective is to go to your cells, to go to your mitochondria, so your mitochondria can transform it into energy and every cell in your body needs these mitochondria to make energy in order to see for your eye cells, think for your brain cells, you know move for your feet cells so you can dance. Every cell in your body wants its glucose to arrive so it can make energy. Unfortunately, in the case of a spike, too much glucose arrives too quickly to your mitochondria And your mitochondria do not like this very intense delivery of glucose. They kind of get overwhelmed and they shut down. They go on strike. They're like, no, I can't. I I just can't. It's too much. I cannot. And so they just shut down and they stop being able to turn glucose into energy. And as your mitochondria shut down, by the way, poor mitochondria, (laughs) they produce these molecules called free radicals. And free radicals are these stress molecules that your mitochondria make. Free radicals are really damaging to our body because everything they touch, they hurt. So if a free radical bumps into your DNA, it can cause a mutation in your DNA that might lead to cancer. If a free radical bumps into the membrane of one of your cells, it will cut that membrane open and your cell will get damaged. So your body tries to protect you against these free radicals by increasing inflammation levels. So that's one of the things that happen. Mitochondria get overwhelmed, that leads to free radical production, oxidative stress, and inflammation. First Mm. bad thing. Second bad thing has to do with toasting. So this was news to me when I I (laughs) learned about it. From the moment we're born, we are slowly cooking. Like literally the inside of a human body cooks like a piece of toast in the toaster or a chicken in the oven. And then when you're fully cooked, you die. For real! And this cooking process is called glycation, and literally your insides brown from the moment you're born until you die. With every glucose spike, you cook a little bit faster. Because glucose, when it's running around in your body, when it bumps into another molecule, it glycates it, it cooks it, essentially. So with every glucose spike, you're aging faster. And this shows on your face. You get wrinkles quicker, and it also damages your organs. And eventually they shut down and you die. Mm. So your body knows these two terrible things are happening. Your mitochondria are suffering, and you're cooking too fast. Yeah. So it tries to protect you against this glucose, this excess glucose that is causing these issues. And to protect you, it sends out insulin. Insulin, the hormone from your pancreas. And insulin takes glucose, as much glucose as it can, and it ushers it away into these storage units. So your muscles, your liver, and your fat cells. And that's one of the ways that we gain weight. And over time, when this happens a lot, your body has to produce more and more insulin to try to prevent too much glucose from floating around. And this then leads to prediabetes and diabetes. So those are the main mechanisms that happen. It's not yeah. not so not so rosy.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know it's it's almost like we have to talk about these things as As tough as it is to talk about the fact that we are all toasting inside and those uh, glycation products uh, can lead to these issues, whether it's wrinkles, whether it's energy crashes, uh, whether it's issues with our immune system. Uh, you know you can look at this through so many different lenses and how metabolism affects. i mean immunometabolism is a really big thing and i think a lot more people are thinking about it considering what we've gone through and still going through with the pandemic as well and about how those who have uh worsening weight issues and obesity have worsening um uh, outcomes when it comes to any infection let alone yeah the pandemic. i think in the
0: studies um so if you are pre-diabetic, so if you have fasting glucose levels that are high, you're twice as likely to die from a COVID infection. Mm. Um, and more and more studies have been coming out showing this very clear connection. And this is not you know, the only space in which having too much glucose for too long or glucose dysregulation causes issues. I mean, also a big one that I hear a lot about in my community is female hormones mm. and how too much glucose and too much insulin causes problems like infertility, can be one of the reasons you develop polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, It really is fundamental. And I have this image that I like using. Imagine your body is a plane Mm. and you're sitting in the cockpit and your job is to try to keep your plane flying in the air to keep your body healthy, essentially. But the problem is you have no idea how the plane works like. I used to have no idea how my body worked, yet I was the pilot trying to make myself feel good, trying to keep myself healthy. Well, my whole philosophy is there's one lever in the cockpit that if you learn about it, it's going to give you the biggest bang for its buck. You're going to be able to keep your plane flying and start improving all aspects of your health. And that lever is understanding your glucose levels and avoiding Mm -hmm. these glucose spikes. And so many things fall into place when we do.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I love the way you describe uh, insulin, even though it's responsible as an anabolic hormone for putting on weight. We should be thankful for it because it is protecting us against the issues of excess glucose in our bloodstream, causing location and inflammation and oxidative stress. So I think having that sort of knowledge and that thankful attitude to Mm -hmm. what's normal in our body is is really important to recognize.
0: Yeah, because actually, you know, genetically, if you're not able to put on weight to put on Mm. fat your glucose levels are going to be higher much quicker and you're going to be more likely to develop diabetes faster than somebody who can put on a lot of fat. So when we gain weight, we have to actually thank our body for <laughs> for creating this fat to protect us against the development of diabetes too quickly. It's a whole mental shift, but… Um, yeah. I think it's really important to do. You know, we have to thank our body. Our, tr- our body is just trying to keep us alive, guys. Like yeah. it's working yeah. for us, but we just don't understand its language. So we tend to blame it, or to blame ourselves, or to be confused, or to antagonize it. But actually, everything your body does is to try to help you.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and using that analogy that you just used of the the lever that. Gives us most bang for our buck. Um, You've included a couple of studies in the book about glucose flattening diets as the most effective way to reduce or to reverse sorry type 2 diabetes and prevent type 2 diabetes. I wonder if we could speak about that slightly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, for a long time, and I'm going to speak about American studies because those are the ones that have been the biggest. So for a long time, the American Diabetes Association did not recommend essentially a low glucose spiking diet or a low carb mm. diet, if you will, to prevent diabetes. We used to think it was just a matter of reducing calories or focusing on fat reduction. And while those can also work, so for example, you know, a lot of really cool studies have been shown on the benefits of fasting for reversing type two diabetes. They also work, but one of the most effective ways to put your diabetes in remission is just to stop what's causing it in the first place, which is this excess insulin that gets triggered after each glucose spike. So now the American Diabetes Association does recommend a low-glucose spike diet because, you know, just faced with the mounting evidence that shows that this is beneficial, it's become very clear that it's one of the best ways to do it. And if you focus on reducing your glucose spikes, you can put your diabetes in remission without having excessive hunger, without Mm. suffering from cravings, while a low-fat or low-calorie diet also work, there can be, they can be much harder to deal with because you're hungry all the time. But when mm. you flatten your glucose curves, your cravings start dissipating. So things just are much easier. But what's your experience, Rupi, with this?
1: Well, I was going to say, this is probably a lovely way of thinking about it because it means that you're agnostic about the type of diet one might want. And I always refer back to this study, the A to Z study, by Gardner um, at Stanford University where they demonstrated that regardless of the diet that you chose, whether it was low calorie, low carb, paleo, everyone could lose weight. The kicker was your ability to maintain said diet. And so if you choose you know uh, one that has a, an omnivorous diet or a vegan diet or low carb diet, I think the best way to look at this is using glucose as a lens. So looking at actually what the impact is on your glucose, not at the expense of everything else. And I think that one of the first things you say in your book is glucose isn't everything. And I think that's a really good primer for a lot of people because it can become a bit obsessive. And we'll talk about that a bit later. But looking at any diet or any way of eating that you want, through the lens of glucose and its impact on insulin, uh, I think is a really good way of describing how people can maintain a a diet like that and actually uh, lead to the benefits of which there are many.
0: Absolutely, and you know, the hacks I share, they can be applied to anybody's dietary preferences. So whether Mm, you're vegan or you're keto or you're whatever, the hacks like eating your food in the right order, having a savory breakfast, putting clothes on your carbs, these apply to everyone. What I talk about is not, you know, another type of diet. These are just mm. fundamental principles regarding how to eat to keep your body in an optimal space. So, that's really important to me to point out. This applies to everyone.
1: Well, let's talk about some of these hacks because yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what people are listening for. So let's let's talk about uh, these hacks that are used to flatten your your glucose. You mentioned a, a couple of them there. The order of your food. I want to start off there because I I think this is an easy one to to start off with, and it and the the explanation behind it I think is is brilliant. Like the the potential mechanisms as to why this might work. Sure. So
0: let's say you have your next meal in front of you and your meal has different components maybe it has some fish some rice some broccoli and then a dessert if you eat the elements of that meal in a specific order you can reduce the glucose spike of the meal by up to 75%. 75 percent
1: so, Seventy-five.
0: yeah <laughs> and the insulin spike by up to 40 percent so you can eat the exact same meal but if you eat the food in your meal in the right order my gosh, a lot of things get better. And so the right Mm. order is vegetables first, so in our case, the broccoli, proteins and fats second, so the fish and whatever fat you also have on your plate, then starches, so the rice, then sugars, so the dessert, which that one's an obvious one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, 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 of course. And the reason why?
0: The reason why is because the fiber in the vegetables has this magical superpower. If you eat your vegetables first, the fiber lands in your stomach first, then it arrives in your small intestine, and there it deploys its superpowers. The fiber essentially turns into this viscous mesh that coats the inside of your intestinal walls. And this viscous mesh is now protecting you from any glucose coming down afterwards and preventing your body from absorbing too much of that glucose too quickly into your bloodstream. So it's protecting you from this rapid rise in glucose in your blood, so it's preventing the glucose spike. That's the first reason the order is really effective. The second reason has to do with the protein and the fat. So there's this mechanism called gastric emptying, which is the process of your food moving from your stomach to your intestine. And protein and fats, when they're in your stomach, they slow down gastric emptying. So if you eat the proteins and fats, first before the carbs any carbs arriving afterwards will just make it to your small intestine at a slower pace and then once they're there the fibrous mesh is even preventing too much glucose from getting through anyway so Mm. you have these two very powerful mechanisms
1: that's brilliant i mean like i always like to think of things through the lens of traditional diets right yeah and my question to you was gonna be, do we see any clues in how our ancestors may have already figured this out when we look at diets from across the world, maybe Middle Eastern diets, Korean diets, Japanese, et cetera?
0: Absolutely. So, you know, in the Middle East, most meals start with herbs eaten by the bunch. In Italy, you start with antipasti, which is literally mm. grilled vegetables as a starter. In France, you start with crudité, which are just raw vegetables. So you see all these ways in which we've known this stuff for a really long time, and yeah. only now do we understand why it works. But yes, um, there are many examples of glucose science sort of showing us why cultural, <laughs> cultural ways of eating are good for our glucose levels.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I always like, love finding these patterns and like, yeah. oh, this is now supported by the science. I mean the whole science around the gut microbiota and mm-hmm. the uh, importance of in- introducing like microbes in- into your diet is sort of being vindicated. It was vindicating like Ayurvedic practices, traditional Chinese practices. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of stuff that we see there as well. And I love that. And that idea of um, the-, the fiber creating that mesh and preventing the quick absorption of the glucose through uh, into the bloodstream, which is, It's pretty amazing if you think about it, because you're not changing the total glucose content of your meal at all. You're not changing anything to do with calories or anything like that. You're literally just changing the order that has a physiological difference.
0: Yeah, because if you did it the other way around, um, if you ate your carbs first, they Mm. would land in your stomach and then make it to your small intestine completely completely uninterrupted very quickly, your small intestine with no fibrous mesh would just let everything go through and bam, big glucose spike. And even if you ate your broccoli afterwards, it no longer has an effect on that glucose spike. It's basically too late. And Mm -hmm. people often ask me, well, don't all the foods you know mix in your stomach does it even matter and i actually thought that too before but the science shows us that it's not that simple if you eat the fiber first it really has an impact if you then follow with the protein and fat it makes the overall glucose spike smaller and you don't have to wait between each element of the meal so you can just eat them in order yeah Mm, it's really cool Mm -hmm.
1: yeah no that's a really cool tip. and and talking about uh the order of food Let's talk about breakfast. So there is that saying, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and you say that is true, but not for the reasons that we have been taught historically. Yeah. Uh, so what? T- tell us about glucose. Uh, tell us about glucose and and uh, and breakfast and and why this is so important.
0: Totally. So this is coming from someone. I will repeat it. Who used to have a Nutella crepe or two every morning <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid until you know I was 15 years old or something. And I would then go to school, and then by 10.30, I was famished. Like, my Mm. stomach would hurt from the hunger I felt. And I just thought that was normal. I just thought this is what normal feels like. It's normal to have this pain all morning (laughs) and to be this starving. It turns out that actually, your breakfast and the glucose spike it creates or does not create in your body first thing in the morning has a humongous impact on your hunger levels and your cravings for the rest of the day. Mm. So in the scientific studies, they gave people two different breakfasts. Both had the exact same number of calories. So it's not about calories. Mm -hmm. One created a big glucose spike. The other one did not. In the group that had a big glucose spike for breakfast, they became hungry again after two hours, just like it would happen to me. In the group that did not have a glucose spike, they were hungry at like 2 p.m., 3 p.m. They didn't even have this crazy craving for food until mid-afternoon. Yeah. And so actually, you know, the scientists discovered that the shape of your breakfast glucose spike really impacts how you're gonna feel how hungry you're gonna get because of its effect on your insulin levels on the craving center in your brain and on your hunger hormones so big hack number one hack eat a savory breakfast because that's the simplest way to get yourself somewhere where your your breakfast will not create a glucose spike so center your breakfast around protein fat fiber then you can add a bit of starch and sugar for taste. But in the sugar realm, only have whole fruit if you want something sweet in the morning. Cut out cereal, muesli, oats, fruit juices, like all that stuff. But you can have those as dessert after your lunch or your dinner if you really want to. So I'm not about like cutting things out really, just I'm about rearranging and reorganizing when and how you eat your food so you still get the same pleasure but you're not harming your body in the process.
1: Yeah, I really do appreciate that philosophy actually. It's not about restricting or saying you can't have something or other. It's just about the order or, or the order as being one of the hacks. And actually from my own clinical practice of discussing this with patients, particularly those who will have, you know, certain cereal brands in the morning, they're hungry by 11 and they're asking me for like, you know, snack options and that kind of stuff. I'm like, "Well, we need to really look at the glucose content of your meal at the start of the day, because that will send you on a roller coaster. That will dictate your hunger levels, your uh, your your fatigue levels, what you're craving in the uh, in the afternoon in terms of a coffee for more energy and that kind of stuff. So it's a yeah, it's a really important hack, and I, I'm a big fan of having a savoury breakfast. In fact, I have my leftovers. Me from too. dinner like, but you have that as well okay oh my great God, great my we're favorite. on the same I have, team
0: <laughs> i have like fish for breakfast now or broccoli <laughs> like anything it's really it's really nice yeah. um, and yeah. i want i want to say something about um these cravings and how your patients are then asking you how do i like suppress these cravings or how do i cater to them and mm. actually what's really happening is that these cravings are just a symptom of the deregulated glucose levels and so it's important to zoom out and as you do really well to ask, you know, why are they there in the first place? It's like, if you have a bunch of pimples on your face, sure, you can buy makeup and take medication to get the pimples to go away, or do a bunch of stuff to cover it up or try to placate the situation. But actually, if you zoom out, it's like, hmm, this is just a symptom of this underlying thing happening in my body. Very often, just too many glucose spikes. And all these symptoms, the cravings, the acne, the poor energy, the poor sleep, I like to think of them as your body trying to speak to you. Mm. That's your body trying to be like, hey, Ruby, like, there's some stuff going on in here. Can you please, like, <laughs> try to get these glucose spikes under control? And your body tries to speak to you. Um, but often we don't know how to listen and we suppress the symptoms or we medicate them or we feel guilty about them when actually we just need to listen.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, having more data on what's going on inside combined with intentional listening uh, i.e., being more intuitive about what your body's saying to you i think is a really good way of ensuring that we start and maintain habits that we can uh, that will put us in good stead um and i think yeah that's why i'm i'm a really big fan of of really listening to uh, what's going on in your body and actually having monitors like that because it can um, it can yeah give you a, a a lot of insight into that. I did have a question about this uh, particular chapter. What is is it brigadeiro? Brigadeiro. Yeah. What is that brigadeiro? Oh my god, it's the most
0: <laughs> delicious thing in the whole world. So I think it's a chapter <laughs> in which I explain all the delicious chocolatey stuff I like to eat. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so brigadeiro. It's so uh, my step grandmother is Brazilian. And Uh she, it's a Brazilian dessert. And so the way it's made, so you get condensed milk Uh and butter, and you heat it up in a pan. And then you add a bunch of um, powdered chocolate that also has sugar in it. (laughs) So you make this sort of (laughs) caramel chocolate thing. And then you let it cool down. And you can either eat it with a spoon or you can turn it into little balls and put chocolate sprinkles around them or powdered sugar. Wow. <laughs> wow. It is so good, Rupee. it's so good. And uh, in the book, I explained that, of course I eat this stuff because it's delicious, yeah. but I don't eat it on an empty stomach. I'll mm. have it for dessert after a meal, uh, maybe after some vinegar too, and then I'll go for a walk, you know, and use my muscles so I can still enjoy this Mm. delicious decadent dessert but with fewer consequences on my body so I don't feel guilty about it I'm like it's cool I'm using all my hacks so I can eat this and help my body process it as well but you have to try this I I know
1: (gasps) I definitely will try that you have to send me the recipe for sure I mean like a lot of people are are in disbelief when I tell them about what the kind of things that I like to eat obviously in moderation I don't have it every single day or whatever but I think Indulgence is a really important part of living. Yeah. And food is such an important pleasure. And you know, you just described to me right there with you this being a recipe from your family lineage. You know, it's a Brazilian, there's there's this history there. So you want to be able to enjoy food with the with that knowledge and you know minimize the impact on your physiology too. So yeah, I think yes. it's a really important part.
0: And also, when you get your glucose levels steady, what happens is that this break takes place. The things that you used to crave just because your glucose levels was deregulated, Mm. like really crappy tasting cookies at the corner store or just anything sweet you'd find at the airport, those go away. So now when you eat something sweet, it's because you really love it and it's really good. It's no longer out of this just very intense feeling of, oh my God, I need sugar right now. So as a result, your relationship to, you know, delicious brigadeiro or chocolate cake or chocolate ice cream or all the chocolate things I like <laughs> changes, <laughs> you're, you're much more in an enjoyment mode because you're no longer controlled by them. You're being intentional and happy about it and it brings you joy and no more guilt and no more pain. So it's it's such a beautiful thing to experience to go to that side of the mirror.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I I totally agree. There's a whole bunch of desserts now that I'm thinking uh, that my mum makes uh, with like a ton what? of sugar in. So, well, there's rosemalai, which is uh, one of my favourites, sort of like a milky dessert with like a sponge, and it's got cardamom and nice. a, a ton of sugar. And uh, <laughs> there's also um, uh, galab jam, which is like uh, a, a small donut that's deep fried and then covered in uh, in syrup. It's a, wow. it's, it's a terrible is that when you think about it from a glucose pod. I can't believe we're talking about this in the glucose pod. But uh but it's it's very, very sugary. And you you definitely need to put in, in into action some of your your hacks. You mentioned vinegar. I, I want to talk to you about this one because this is this is new to me. Um tell us about why vinegar before a sugary dessert or a meal can can flatten glucose levels. And that's been shown in, in, in studies as well.
0: It's because vinegar contains this magical molecule called acetic acid. And acetic acid communicates with your muscles and it goes to your muscles and it tells them, hey, rupees muscles, you need to soak up way more glucose than usual. You're really hungry for glucose. And the acetic acid essentially tells your muscles to do just that. If they feel any glucose coming into the bloodstream, they now are going to soak it up and store it as glycogen at a much higher rate than they normally would. So what happens is that you eat your sugary thing or you eat that meal, but if you have a tablespoon of vinegar in a tall glass of water before that meal, or you can even just add vinegar to the meal, for example, um, you have a much smaller glucose spike, but it's reduced by up to 30% without changing anything that you're eating. Just wow. by adding something to the situation, you reduce the spike. So flattening your glucose levels is not about cutting things out or reducing what you eat. More often than not, it's about adding things to your diet, yeah,
1: yeah, which makes yeah. it
0: fun. But it's really incredible, the, the power of vinegar. And you know there are many clinical trials, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trials on vinegar. Mm that show the impact on remission of type two diabetes, on polycystic ovarian syndrome symptoms. And just as we were saying about the starting with vegetables being something you know traditional, in Iran and in other countries, apple cider vinegar is something that everybody drinks every day and grandmothers make it it's like it's it's a very traditional thing to make so how amazing that now we know that actually one of the ways it's helpful to us is in reducing the glucose spikes it fascinates me it's so cool
1: yeah that that is really cool and like i'm just trying to think of other cuisines that might have that sort of vinegary element at the start of the meal and what I've traditionally thought it was because of is because it enhances sort of um, your digestive enzymes and it starts the whole process, um, which is, yeah, which, which kind of makes sense, you know, like that you're going to break down the molecules, you're going to uh, activate your muscles, to take on the, the glucose and convert it into glycogen. And so that, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm just trying to think of like other examples of of diets that might do this. Have you heard of the the Japanese sort of order? I believe they have ferments at the start of the meal. Would that be the same thing or is that slightly different? (laughs)
0: That's different. So there's no acetic acid specifically in fermented foods, although Mm. vinegar is a fermented food. um, But, you know, eating fermented foods are fermented foods are really good for lots of other reasons, notably Mm. your microbiome. Mm. Um, Tim Spector talks about this a lot. uh, The the lead scientist on this team at King's College, which is where I studied that study glucose levels. And they have a bunch of cool papers on this. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, he's been on the pod uh, a couple of months ago and he's uh, he's actually got me uh, as a guinea pig for Zoe at the moment. I'm nice. actually wearing uh, um, the, you uh, are the CGM. A glucose I'm, monitor. I'm, I'm doing another one at the moment as well. It's the Dexcom um, just yeah. to see what the difference is. Uh, and I'm calibrating it as well to, see, to make sure that it's accurate. And I think what I'm seeing is like uh, the great trends, particularly for the next thing I was going to ask you about, which is postprandial exercise. So after eating, if I go for a walk, my glucose level is steady, regardless of whatever I've eaten. It's pretty amazing to see that actually. And if, I mean, I'm, I'm using a standing desk at the moment, but if I eat something in the afternoon that has like some rice or, you know, I haven't done any of your order hacks. I certainly haven't had any vinegar or anything like that. Uh, I can see that rise, you know, I can, I see that bump in in the middle of the day, um, Tell us about the postprandial exercise. I think this is super interesting. It's something that everyone could do.
0: Well, your muscles, every time they contract, they need energy to do it. And the first place they look for this energy is in glucose in your bloodstream. And so this is information that can really help us understand why it's useful. Because after you eat a meal, you have two options. You either sit in your couch the glucose from the meal makes it through your digestive system, then into your bloodstream and big glucose spike. Then your body, with the help of insulin, brings that glucose back down. Or if after you eat, within an hour after the end of your meal, if you start using your muscles, so you can go for a walk you can dance to your favorite song, you can do the dishes, you can fold your laundry, you can play with your kids, you can go do your really intense workout at the gym, whatever. Your muscles, as they contract, will be soaking in the glucose from your bloodstream to be used for energy. And as a result, the spike is just naturally smaller. And what's really cool is that when you're exercising, your muscles do not need insulin to uptake glucose. So moving your body, using your muscles after eating, reduces the glucose and the insulin spike. Mm -hmm. Super powerful, especially powerful um, if you're somebody who suffers from being sleepy after your meals, which is often a side effect of the glucose crashing back down. It's really helped me completely get rid of that. So I'm no longer sleepy after my meals because I get up and I move for 10 minutes and then I feel great and energized and I don't have that slump. And I don't have the cravings a couple yeah. hours after eating. Yeah. yeah. So that's another no, that's... one of the hacks in, in glucose revolution. Um, and it's easy stuff and it really is life-changing.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's almost like the holy grail, isn't it? It's stable glucose with stable insulin levels as well. That's like that's like the ultimate hack that we all need to sort of try and get into the habit of doing, right? Because yeah, the because, insulin. Mm.
0: Because you, you know, one of the ways to keep your glucose levels down or steady is to inject a bunch of insulin because Mm. the more insulin there is, the more your glucose will be put away into the storage units in your body. But the issue is, you know, doing that doesn't actually solve the problem. And over time, all this insulin leads to insulin resistance, which is the precursor to type two diabetes. So it's really important to think about hacks that lower your glucose levels while also lowering your insulin and vinegar does this eating your food in the right order does this moving after you eat does this and all the other hacks in my book also do this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's um, important to note that this isn't just for people who are at risk of type two diabetes or might have a metabolic inflexibility issue like PCOS or, you know, this is for everyone, including type one diabetics, actually, obviously with the advice of a, a health professional and a nutritionist, if you have one, Uh, Because you need to be monitoring your insulin requirements, but reducing one's insulin requirements is a massive win. And And I don't think we fully appreciate the ability to do this with some simple lifestyle hacks that you've just described here on the pod and you also do in the book as well.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, for a long time, we thought that only people who had diabetes, so type one or type two, had to worry about their glucose levels. But now Mm -hmm. we know, Rupi, that 90% of people without diabetes experience glucose spikes every day without knowing it. But while being very familiar with the consequences, the cravings Mm. and the fatigue and the needing to eat every 90 minutes, the poor sleep, the hormonal issues, the weight gain, the acne, the everything. So this is really a revolution in our understanding of health and of the importance of glucose. And that's that's who the book is for. The book is for anybody who doesn't wake up in the morning feeling amazing. It's for everybody, because keeping your glucose level steady helps you In so many ways, physical and mental, everybody.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's been some criticism of CGM for non-diabetics in the past over the last couple of years, you know, some doctors on Twitter. And my response to that is even though when I work in the NHS, we don't have access to these monitors um, for those who do not have type 2 diabetes. And it is kind of hard to get them even for those people as well um it's what you just described there it's the understanding of why you're having these reactive hypoglycemic episodes that lead to a roller coaster of your emotions and how you're feeling in terms of your energy levels that can also have impacts on you craving and then in the context of an obesogenic environment you're then grabbing whatever is in front of you which unfortunately in our environment is a lot of sugary snacks, a lot of high absolutely. salt snacks, a lot of uh, things that are going to rapidly change your your glucose levels, right?
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, for those who don't have access to you or can't afford glucose monitors because they're still quite expensive or in the US need a prescription to get them, you know, it's not like you can just buy them anywhere. The, the glucose hacks I share, you don't need a glucose monitor to use them. In fact, I would say maybe 98% of the people who are um, following my Glucose Goddess Instagram account, they don't have a glucose monitor. They're just using the hacks and starting to feel better very quickly physically and mentally without needing to monitor themselves. But I do think that wearing a glucose monitor is very interesting and very cool and can help you reconnect with your body in a way. How has your experience been?
1: My experience has been really positive i think Mm -hmm. i'm the kind of person that loves analytics and i'm also the kind of person that won't get too anxious about it either and i think i've described my experience to a few other people uh including people who would not like and would not benefit from say like an aura ring or some other sleep device because they'd get pretty anxious in the mornings about how Mm -hmm. they haven't slept properly etc etc And I don't think it would be appropriate for those types of people because it's almost a bit too much information and it can spiral into an unhealthy obsession with eating to maintain your glucose level. So I think for certain people, it would be brilliant. Um, I actually think a CGM would be useful in short bouts, like for seven days to see what your response is like. And then maybe in the same way, you would do a blood test every six or 12 months. You see what your metabolic flexibility is like on the basis of some of your lifestyle hacks. So when it comes to like encouraging people to adopt a lifestyle that's super healthy, I I think it, I think it could be a really good, uh, thing to trial.
0: Absolutely. But definitely if you're somebody who tends to, you know, um, get quite disordered when, it comes to tracking yourself. So whether it's weight, whether it's steps, like if you're that kind of person where you know this is triggering to you, don't use a glucose monitor because it's Mm. giving you constant feedback every 30 seconds on what's happening. And yes, for some people, it can be very overwhelming. I think as long as there's enough education around it, um, it's easy to understand what's happening. But what I see often is that people will try one and then they get very hung up on the exact numbers. They're like, oh, Mm. I was at 87. Now I'm at 84. Am I okay? Is this bad? Is this reactive hypoglycemia? So... Yeah. If you're going to wear a glucose monitor, read my book so you can get the context and not get too freaked out about small things and understand what actually matters. That's yeah. my recommendation because I get a lot of messages from stressed out people and it breaks my heart because really? they're yeah. fine. Yeah, because yeah. it's yeah. there's very little education so far. People don't really know how to interpret the data. So um, really... And if, if you don't want to buy my book, that's fine. Just look on my Instagram and try to get a bit of context before you use it just for your own sake, because I don't want you to be stressed out when you're probably totally fine. Yeah,
1: yeah, I, I have the exact same sort of uh, relationship with some of my followers as well and, and and people who listened by the pod and the newsletter and all the rest of it, because sometimes it can be really easy to get hung up on exactly every element of your lifestyle to try and optimize it Mm -hmm. and if you're not doing that am i bringing myself to harm if i have a bit of sunflower oil is this inflammatory is this going to lead me to have cancer you know all these different things that you can understand to certain people would spiral into an unhealthy obsession so i think that's really important but i think you've done a really good job like like i said right at the start of this pod The fact that you've communicated the science really responsibly is super clear. And right at the start, you say, look, glucose isn't everything, because if you just eat for your glucose monitor, you'll just eat bacon all day long. (laughs) You know, that's not going to do anything to your glucose, but it's not going to be healthy. So, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. And I think you're doing a great job.
0: Thank you, Rupi. It's very important to me to, you know, be as nuanced as I possibly can to explain that There's many other things in your life. Yes, glucose and keeping your glucose level steady will help you feel better and it's going to heal a lot of stuff. But, you know, sleep is important. Stress is important. Not eating unhealthy fat is important. Having human connections is important. Medical care is important. So many things also exist. Um, And I, I don't want people to become, you know... Um, to focus on just glucose, especially while wearing glucose monitor, because as you mentioned, you can just eat bacon all day and have flat glucose levels, but that's not the answer. And in the hacks that I share, I'm very cautious about that. And um, the hacks will help you feel better, will help you flatten your glucose curves while avoiding those pitfalls. And that's mm. very, very important.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. And looking at the evidence base behind what a flat glucose level can help you achieve... If whether you have symptoms or whether you're aware of them or not, I think it's super interesting. So there's a lot more. I think we're going to learn about this field, and I think you're early to the game and uh, and well done. It's a great book, and uh, I'm so glad you had some time to chat to us today.
0: Thank you so much, rupi It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm really touched and glad you like the book. And I hope to meet you in person soon, so you yeah, can, I, mean, I can I can make some brigadero for brigadero.
1: you. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed this week's podcast episode with Jessie. You can find her book, links to everything that we discussed on the podcast at thedoctorskitchen.com. And whilst you're there, make sure you sign up for the newsletter where I share a recipe and probably over the next couple of weeks, a deep dive into some of the topics that we discuss on this podcast as well, because I think it's going to be super interesting for a lot of people. Remember, you can sign up for the Doctor's Kitchen newsletter at thedoctorskitchen.com and I will see you here next time.